So we are starting on that second week of our series on looking for God, and we're looking at texts that have some visual imagery, metaphors of looking for God, but it's also in this Easter season in which we are reflecting on all of these kind of resurrection stories in which people uh, in the story encounter a risen Jesus, and so we are wondering what it is to look for God at work in our lives and in the lives of those around us. And last week we, we talked about our limitations. That the first thing that's important about looking for God is realizing we don't actually know everything about God. Uh, that even Paul is willing to admit we look through a mirror dimly. Uh, and if Paul can admit there are things he doesn't know, I think we can admit that too. And so we continue on our journey and we enter into this text this morning from 2 Kings. And I'm wondering if, if you've felt this experience. There's that old saying about uh, that you can't see the forest for the trees. You know, you get so deep into something that you can't zoom out and look at the bigger picture, look for something greater, something beyond whatever you're going through. And so we live in a world where we could ask things like, what does unity look like when we live in such a politically divided time? What does peace look like in a war-torn world? What does equality look like in a world of discrimination? And as we find ourselves in the midst of all sorts of conflict, you can be like, how on earth do we get past this? How on earth do we get out of this cycle of violence, uh, of broken relationships? And so if you've ever ached over that divisive nature of the world, maybe you might appreciate this story and the violence hopeless space that we enter into, uh, but we exit by a different route in 2 Kings. So we have to set our, our, our story for us. We've got the prophet Elisha, uh, who, who lives in a time where Judah and Israel are separated. They're two different kingdoms. So we have a story about the northern kingdom of Israel, and he's a prophet up there. And Israel is in ongoing warlike conflict with their neighbors to the north, the, uh, the Arameans. And so they keep fighting each other, and in this story, uh, it says that the king of Aram has set up this ambush plan. He wants to take out the king of Israel, or at least something of importance. So they're going to ambush this spot, and yet it keeps failing. And he's like, all right, which of you are traitors? Who's telling them my plans? Because it should work, and nothing's working. And so in the midst of this cycle of violence, they decide to point their finger at Elisha, as a prophet and say, he keeps letting them know your plans. If we go get Elisha, we'll be victorious. And so the path of violence continues and it recalibrates and they decide to go after Elisha. So they send a party at night to go surround him and his village. And so that's the context in which we enter into the story. And before we get started into the full main part of the story, I want us to pause on the important beginning element. And that's uh, there's a dangerous journey ahead of Elisha, and he's got a servant with him, and they both have this dangerous journey ahead. And the servant needs a little glimpse of hope, of courage, of something to get through this day. And so Elisha, uh, his servant, sees the troops surrounding them and fears for his life, as you should. Probably, right? If you see troops surrounding you, that's a little scary. And he wakes up and he says, hey, master, what shall we do? Very pragmatic question. 
They're not doing a theological discourse. He's like, hey, what do I do? Like, they're surrounding us. And so Elisha responds with reassurance, do not be afraid, for there are more with us than there are with them. And that doesn't make sense. He sees the troops around them and like, what do you mean there's more with us than, than with them? And I wonder how often we have felt defeated before a struggle even took place. How often you've looked at the massive armies that surround you. Sometimes those armies are bills. The, the costs, the price of things are stacking up around you. And you're wondering, how on earth do I get past this day? What shall we do? Sometimes the massive armies are uh, obstacles in the way of you fulfilling God's calling for your life. Sometimes those massive armies are health challenges attacking your body. But surely we've imagined a space in which we've looked out at our circumstances and said, what shall we do? Those armies are so big. And so it's tempting to lose heart and to give up. And so it's in that space, looking with natural eyes uh, at the challenges, that Elisha speaks into that moment saying, Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. Notice he doesn't say open our eyes, but he's saying this, this servant needs a vision of something more, of something that gets him through this day. And so the Lord opened the eyes of the servant in the story and he sees a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There's a temptation when you go through criticism and through struggles. The voices of criticism are usually louder than what you see or feel as the support around you. So sometimes those critical voices seem like an army around you and you might just need to have your eyes open to how many people love you, care for you, celebrate you, support you, and most importantly, uh, the divine spirit at work in you uh, is there to lift you up in your trouble. And so, Elisha's servant sees this valley, and part of that pursuit of God is the realization that in the valleys of life, there's always something more, there's always more support than you can even imagine in your dark days. So Elisha and his servant there are encouraged, and they say, okay, let's meet this day. And the visual imagery doesn't stop here. Uh, Elisha is going to ask for more things to happen around eyes, but this time it's he's going to ask for his, his enemies to be blind. But not just to blind them, but so that their eyes might actually be opened more than they've ever been opened before. And so Elisha prays, Lord, strike this people, please, with blindness. Usually we want destruction for our enemies. Here's a moment of, I, I just want them to, to, to be blind for a moment, and it's going to change in a minute. Uh, and what, what's happening in the story is the target for this Aramean war party, the target is Elisha, the target becomes their guide. And there's supposed to be something a little comical about that. They're going looking for someone to kill and they show up and they can't figure out what's going on. And he say, hey, let me show you where to go. So the guy they're looking to kill is leading them on the path. He keeps taking them on the journey. And where does he lead them? But into the heart of Israel's kingdom, Samaria. Now, 
I imagine you can, you can remember this feeling. We're not condoning this, but I'm going to just assume many of you have had this experience in which you were talking about somebody. And maybe it's a little gossipy, maybe it's just talking about them, but suddenly you realize they're in the room with you, and you don't know how they got in that room with you, but you're shocked and startled and realize, oh no. Well, this army shows up in the middle of Samaria, in the middle of the heart of Israel's kingdom, and the king and his troops are there, and it has their eyes being opened of, oh no, what on earth just happened here? Um, That's the kind of imagination in the story of this, this, this kingdom being startled uh, by being at the mercy of Israel's army in the story. And that's not the transformative moment. Things are still, like, there's miraculous elements that the the story is imagining here, but uh, this is business as usual. One army wants to kill the other. The army is tricked. They show up. They're ready to be defeated. And that's the way that the king of Israel feels Seeing what's in front of him, the king of Israel turns to Elisha and says, Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Ooh, ooh, please, pretty please. That's the way the world works. One person's looking to ambush the other. The other person gets, happens upon an ambush. We're like, oh, well, that worked out. And the cycle of violence and that opportunity continues. But Elisha imagines a new way of seeing the world. And so the eyes of this Aramean party are opened in this surprising way, but he still has to open the eyes of Israel's king too. And so Elisha turns to the king and says, No, did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master." And that's good news at work. That's radically transformative ways that the world never usually works. It's a transforming love that defies violence as the way that transformation should happen, but instead shows love and hospitality even to your enemy. And as a result, by breaking this cycle, it reshapes the way that we see the world. It reshapes our imagination of who our enemies are. And it's not about winning the battle. It's about ending the war. Because the king of Israel could have won a battle there. But all that happens is the Arameans are going to hear about it. They're going to send another party. And that violence will start another form of violence. But instead of trying to win the battle, Elisha was seeking to end the war. And the text reads, So the king of Israel prepared for the Arameans a great feast. And after they ate and drank, he sent them on their way, and they went to their master, and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. I want to read a quote about this table scene, where they're sharing this food and they're preparing for their enemies. Um, There was a a young theologian writer um, in in the church in America who died at the age of 37 yesterday. Um, there's a lot of people on social media talking about this and um, grieving publicly about losing a young voice. And she said, this is what God's kingdom is like. 
a bunch of outcasts and oddballs gathered at a table, not because they are rich or worthy or good, but because they are hungry, because they said yes, and there's always room for more. Instead of going to war and continuing the violence, they shared a meal, they opened up the table, and it was big enough for the Israelites and for the Arameans, no matter what their prejudices and discriminations and and lack of vision uh, might have imagined. And so I want to know, who do we need to invite to the table? You know, we, we might not necessarily label people as enemies, but you have people that maybe there's a little bit of a rub, a little bit of animosity, a little bit of can't get along. Uh, what is it to invite them to the table instead of trying to win the argument, instead of trying to one-up them one more time, but to sit down and share a meal and show love and hospitality to them? What is it to offer a meal to the nobodies, the people that you even just don't even notice in life, that you overlook? What is it to offer a meal to the long-missed friends, those relationships that you miss? And it grieves you, but you don't necessarily reach out to actually do anything about it, to reach out to connect to those who have wandered from, from us. If you want to change your situation, we can't seek to defeat the other, to win, to eliminate those that disagree with us. We have to seek to join them in a table of friendship, and transform the conflict instead of continuing it. Don't win the battle. Look for ways to end the war. And that's where God is at work, in the ending of conflicts, in the unity, the bringing of peace, reconciliation. And we as a church are partners in God's invitation to the divine feast. We radically prepare feasts for all people, even when your neighbors, your friends, your family don't think those people deserve to be at the table with you. We make a space for them. We are aware of the fact that we are somebody else's enemy. We are already that person invited to the table, and that helps us to offer that to others as well. We feast literally sometimes, like we have the opportunity this afternoon to have a wonderful meal together, share conversation, build friendships, We also sometimes feast symbolically, like we'll do later today with our communion, uh, that it's a table in which is overflowing in abundance and everyone is called and invited and welcome. We feast every time we bring unity and peace to a broken world. And so I hope that your eyes are opened to the support you have on the journey, like Elisha's servant, that uh, if, if you feel surrounded and hopeless that you'd see the support God and others in your life provide. And that on the journey you might be open to finding more people that are enemies uh, who can become table friends. Let's keep our eyes open to who invite to the feast. So as Elisha prayed, so now we pray. O Lord, please open their eyes that they may see. Would you continue to pray with me? Lord, as much as we have wronged others, Lord, uh, and have to be reminded of our own gratitude, our own thankfulness for the forgiveness of those that we've hurt, Lord, I ask that you would give us 
hearts that are receptive and open and loving to those who might be our enemies in this moment. Lord, I ask that you would make us a people with a heart for those on the outside, for those that are uh, not among us, and that we would be opening up spaces to be welcoming, to be hospitable, to be loving to those people. And Lord, I just ask that you would continue to encourage all of those who feel surrounded today. Let our, let our worship, let our words, let our music, let our, uh, our very presence here be a reminder of the fiery chariots uh, of good that are here to support. It's in your name we pray. Amen.